Joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this current series, we've been engaging in a survey of the Reformed Doctrines of Grace, also known as Calvinism. Now, I said at the beginning that this was somewhat of an excursus in our larger ceiling dealing with the so-called atrocities in the Bible, and that I think that Calvinism better answers some of the problems that we find than does other theological systems. In this episode, we will briefly look at some of the ways that this is the case. So in this episode, we will be looking at how Calvinism functions as an apologetic with regard to two of the major arguments posed against Christianity. Enjoy the show. This episode will be brief since I've spent so much time on this topic already, but I think it will be fruitful to mention some of the ways that Calvinism is helpful to apologetics. Here, I'm not going to be spending time defending Calvinism since we just spent five episodes doing that, so I'm simply going to assume that the case has been made and assume it as a foundation for what I'm going to say here going forward. Let's look at a couple different ways that Calvinism is helpful to the task of apologetics. First is the question of suffering and evil within the natural world. A typical objection to Christianity is raised in various forms of the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Now, for our purposes here, we don't really need to lay out the different kinds of the problems of evil that have been formulated over the millennia, uh, which range from logical problems of evil to evidentialist problems to existential or religious problems, even probabilistic problems of evil. The specific variety of the problem of evil here is largely irrelevant for our purposes. For now, let us just stipulate that there are a lot of different versions of the problem of evil argument. These objections are largely problematic for Christians because often we want to try to get God off the hook, so to speak, for human suffering. We seem to think that God is under some kind of obligation to humans to treat us all equally or that we that he, that he set up the system and is now doing everything that he can to save as many of us as possible but also that this world sets up obstacles that uh, God cannot overcome for some reason typically apologists will posit human freedom as one of those obstacles for example That is, that God created this world with the best of intentions and that he wanted us to be free more than that he wanted us to be sinless. And so he took the risk of human freedom going awry and losing some of us. This means that God is stuck somehow within the confines of the kind of world that he chose to create. 
Now, for more on uh, some of these issues, I recommend that you listen to the back of episode uh, on Molinism that I did with Rob Johnson from Apologetics 105 podcast. This is often paired with a kind of late Western evangelical impulse that emphasizes the desire to share the gospel with everyone, which is a good thing. But it mixes it with the idea that God is standing in heaven, wringing his hands, anxiously awaiting to see who will freely choose him. There are several problems with this from a Calvinistic and Reformed perspective. Firstly, to say that God desires all to be saved is an expression of God's general moral will. God also desires that all will not murder or steal. This general moral will would have covered Pharaoh and Esau, for example. It's not as though God is excited when people sin and reject him. But that also does not entail that God is not active in election or reprobation to fulfill his divine decrees, for example. We saw this uh, in the last few episodes. At this point, the difference between Calvinism and other more Arminian or Molinistic responses is precisely that the Calvinists need not explain away evil. Why is there evil? Well, to bring about the maximal glory to God. As a Calvinist, I don't need to go into best possible world semantics or to try and imagine for every instance of he- evil how some human freedom was a better good or how it somehow helps my with my soul making or something along those lines. Why is there evil? So God can exhibit his justice. Yet at the same time, the gospel is the good news that while God is holy and just and we all of us, every last one of us, is dead in our sins and rightly under the condemnation of God, a detail that most atheists leave out in their objections because they're operating under a lesser concept of biblical narrative. And for more on that, you can see the first episode called Shall Not the Judge of All the Earth Do It Is Just. And it reminds us that there is forgiveness and grace. That is, that in this world, God is glorified when he acts in righteous judgment but also when he acts in self-sacrificial mercy. I simply do not need to engage in best possible world speculations or in bizarre somersaults around philosophical conceptions of the will and between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I simply can fall back on biblical conceptions of election and reprobation. By the way, at this point, if the atheist wants to say, well, then you're just question begging and assuming biblical theism— I can respond and say, yeah, that's right, I am. And I'm reasonable to do so because the objection of the problem of evil is an internal critique. Remember, way back in that first episode on the so-called Bible atrocities where we talked about internal critiques and how they're meant to show an internal tension or contradiction within a position. A way to answer them is to show that there are resources from within that position uh, that, that, that the objection is being lobbied against to resolve the tension or to show that there's no contradiction. This is what Calvinism does for us. If the atheist wants to say that under biblical Christianity you have a problem of evil, well, Calvinism shows us that there's a bunch of other biblical resources that resolve that tension, that there's not actually a contradiction. I don't need to prove that the biblical system of Calvinism is true in the actual world. 
only that the problem of evil does not pose a legitimate threat to it and that there is no internal inconsistency there. Now, that's how Calvinism helps us with the problem of evil. Another way that Calvinism helps us in apologetics is in, in dealing with the problem known as divine hiddenness. If you'd like to listen to a good uh, discussion on this recently, there was one on the show Atheistically Speaking, which I've been a guest on. Head on over there. It was one of the most recent episodes, and it was a discussion between Christian apologist Blake Giunta and atheistic fundamentalist Matthew Dillahunty, and they discussed this problem of divine hiddenness. Now, Blake gives what is an excellent, and I mean excellent, review of the academic arguments against God based on divine hiddenness uh, by philosophers like J.L. Schellenberg and the manifold responses to it. It's excellent because not because it's super detailed, but because he gets across in 10 minutes what would take most people 30 to 45 minutes. It's a really uh, complex issue, and he does a really great job laying it out in a clear and concise way. Matthew Dillahunty, on the other hand, well, he he was there uh, and he said some things. <laughs> I, I mean, I, uh, I'm not sure that Blake could have done any better given that Matthew is uh, usually um, uh, challenged, let's just say, on these issues. Just as an aside, I mean, as an example, Matt complains that in response to the problem of divine hiddenness that Giunta and other apologists like him simply respond with, oh, well, it's, it's not true because reasons. That's his quote, because reasons. And he says it like that's a bad thing or that's like that's an accurate summary of what's being said. I mean, it's just so laughably ridiculous. You could caricature any response to any argument or even any defense of any argument as, oh, because reasons. Well, yeah, there are reasons that Blake argued for and defended his assertions. They were good reasons, actually. Matt, you need to argue why they were bad reasons, which, of course, he never does because he engages in the Dillahunty Dodge. I mean, I could spend a whole episode responding to Matt's terrible arguments, inconsistent epistemology, and just his overall inability to even understand the problem that he's posing. I mean, at one point he complains, literally complains, that Blake is dealing with Schellenberg's version of the argument rather than his own, but he completely misses that it's because his own version is trivially easy to dispose of, while Schellenberg's is much more robust. So what Blake is doing is actually giving him uh, giving him the benefit of the doubt, doing him an intellectual favor by saying, okay, let's look at the hardest version of the problem, not your silly watered-down one. Uh, it, it's just, uh, anyways, uh, besides, okay. Besides Matt basically doing what Matt does in these discussions, which is often just show blind bias, uh, what that blind bias looks like on the atheistic side of the aisle. I thought Blake, while he did a seriously, a really superb job, uh, with handling it, I think it would have helped if he had simply answered from a Calvinistic perspective. It would have been much clearer um, and much more concise and I think much more biblically faithful. And we'll get to this. And I've talked to Blake um, 
in private conversation. I'm not trying to say he's unbiblical. He actually, uh, I think he leans more in this direction, uh, but he stands in in kind of the, the river of uh, standard apologetics, which I'll talk about towards the end. You see, the whole problem of divine hiddenness comes down to if God desires a relationship with humanity, then why in the hell would he hide himself, to put it bluntly? I mean, Matt was trying to drive that point home the best that that Matt could, uh, even though he couldn't really defend any of his assumptions or assertions. The problem is, and Blake did mention this, by the way, but I, I, I think by the time he did, too much time had passed and Matt had been allowed for too long to make way too many assumptions and to smuggle in way too many of those kind of bland evangelical sentimentalisms for Blake to really drive the point home to him, um, that he wasn't arguing that God wants a personal relationship with Matt. And he's right. Well, sort of. In one sense, all of humanity is in a relationship with God. This is the point of Calvinism. We are all in a relationship with God. We are all in the creator-creature relationship. We all stand in some kind of relationship, in some sense, to God. The question is not if God is trying to have a relationship with us. The question is if our relationship is that of a convicted felon with a judge or of a beloved child to a father. That is, is the God who is near near in grace in Jesus Christ, or near in wrath of his judgment. Was God trying to have a personal relationship with Esau? What about Pharaoh? What about Achan? Was God trying to have a personal relationship with Ananias and Sapphira and Acts? I mean, it, it's just it's just a bizarre position. And again, I know why the church has started to use this kind of language. I just don't think it's very biblically accurate. In fact, we read passages like Isaiah 6, 8 through 12 that read, quote, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie in waste, without inhabitant and house without people, and land, the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. End quote. Notice that in this passage, God is sending out the prophet Isaiah specifically with the purpose, with the ministry of making the unbeliever, of making the unrepentant sinner not be able to understand what they hear, not be able to perceive what they see, to dull their heart, to heavy their ears, to blind their eyes. Why? Because if that didn't happen, they might see, they might hear, they might understand, they might turn and be healed. Now that might be a really uncomfortable passage 
for a lot of people. But it very clearly is saying that God, in his act of judgment, confirms people in their sin. Right? This is the point of Romans 1. And this passage in Isaiah is repeated six times in the New, in the New Testament. It's not some secret verse. So do biblical Calvinists believe in divine hiddenness? Yeah, we do. Intentionally so. The, the, the Bible tells us so. The problem that Matt was having was that he thinks that the Bible presents God as this miserly old man in the sky who's just begging and pleading with all humanity to please, 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 won't you come play on my playground? That view is so anathema to the Bible because it places humanity as the whole purpose of creation rather than God. It makes God the cosmic butler who needs to bend and bow himself in order to do our bidding and to satisfy our whims. Well, the Bible presents God and humanity in our relationship completely differently. Does God hide? Well, yes and no. In one sense, no. God has made himself known in creation. This is the point of Romans 1 and Psalms 19. We can know that there is a God from the evidence of creation, that there's something rather than nothing, that the universe is finely tuned, that there is specified complexity in genetic information, that it's governed by a realm of abstract, immaterial, absolute, eternal, immutable, transcendent laws of thought, which are the laws of logic, that there is objective moral values and duties, that there are persons and minds and on and on and on. There's so much evidence that God exists in creation. There's the redemptive act of, acts of God in history and the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's the testimony of billions of people who have experienced the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit in their, in their lives. But God has also personally and specifically revealed himself to us in the scriptures, in the pages of the Old and New Testament. Again, Matt is here just working on the assumption of an internal critique so I can answer with Jesus' parable that if they do not believe in Moses and the prophets, then they wouldn't believe even if someone were to raise from the dead right there in front of them. Right? It, for those of you who remember, I did an episode on Greta Christina and I did a, a, a blog post recently um, on, on naturalism. And there's this, there's the whole problem of the natural, naturalistic epistemology that they'll say they'll believe on evidence. But when you press them, there is no such evidence that could possibly pass through their naturalistic filter. They've set up their evidence in such a way that nothing could be convincing because you could always fall back on any ad hoc naturalistic explanation or even just a simple, I don't know, as the simple, the humblest explanation, rather than appealing to some unknown sky daddy. Right? There's a sense in which Matt has all of the evidence in the world that God exists and that he ought to believe. So why doesn't he? Is it because God is hiding from him? Now, I can't speculate on Matt's eternal destiny. I don't know. The Bible does tell us in Romans 1 exactly why, if he's a reprobate, why he doesn't believe. It's not because he's reasonably evaluated the evidence and he's, he's objective and unbiased in his views. No, it's because he suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness and exchanges it for a faulty view of the world where his own autonomous self reigns. Now, 
I don't know if it will always be that way. And this was Blake's point to, to those who listened to the show. We don't know that Matt is not one of the elect. We don't know if God isn't already working upstream to bring Matt to salvation. We don't know if his salvation is not already assured in heaven and that one day he'll be brought to humility and repentance and faith. We simply don't know. And so we keep dialoguing with him and offering him the hope of the gospel that Christ died so that all who believe will be saved. Now, I pray for Matt every day. I really do. He's on my list. But if Matt is a reprobate, if Matt is preordained by God for everlasting judgment, like he is with Pharaoh or Esau or Ananias and Sapphira or Achan or Ahab or Jezebel, right? And on and on. Then God may may in fact hide That seems to be the point of Isaiah 6 and Romans 1, that God hands them over to their own sin. He confirms them in their own sin. That if they want to reject God, then so be it. God will be ever-present, and even though they see the same thing as the rest of us, they will never understand. Now, here I'd like to recommend an essay by philosopher Travis Dumsday, who argues that divine hiddenness acts as a kind of divine mercy. That even though Matt may be a reprobate, that God still shows him mercy by not fully revealing himself to to Matt. Right? Why does God hide? Well, Dumsday says that this is because God still shows divine mercy even to the reprobate. That if God didn't hide, that would make Matt more culpable than he already is. Because he would have more information about God. He'd have more reason to believe. He'd have more reason to repent. But if, if, if he's a reprobate, if he's never going to believe, then adding insult to injury wouldn't help him any. So there's a sense that hiddenness against the reprobate may be an act of judgment, but it may also be an act of merciful judgment nonetheless. So here we can see that Calvinism answers the hiddenness problem again without needing to go into this best possible world semantics and without having these confusing appeals to counterfactuals of human freedom and so forth. We can see that under Calvinism, there simply is not the need to appeal to having some relationship with God where we can demand that God condescend to our whims more than he already did on the cross, but rather that he should be that we should be confronted by our own sin against a holy creator and to repent those that repent do so by the sovereign decree of the grace of god and those who do not do so by the flip side of that same decree god does not then need to play hide and seek we can agree with the bible that god has revealed himself to all in creation But we can also agree that he intentionally darkens the minds of the reprobate. In fact, this seems to be the entire point that Paul is driving at when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Quote, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. 
On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ end quote so the the point is that we don't the christian doesn't need to go around with secret ways trying to define divine who is elect and who is reprobate and and only give the gospel secretly to some and and not to others Right? There's no secret Gnostic knowledge involved where, where you, have the, you have these mystical rituals to, to figure out who's in and who's out. And, and only the people that prove themselves can get this magic knowledge. Right? It's not, we're not scientism. Right? We can declare the gospel from the rooftops in plain language and in good conscience. But we also know that the unbelievers will be blinded to the gospel so that they cannot see the light because they are perishing already. But also, that believers will have the knowledge of God shown into their hearts by the glory of God in Christ. Again, this isn't a call to self-righteousness. I don't know this side of heaven who is elect and who is not. We are to treat all people with humility and kindness and to share the gospel with all people. But that God does not reveal himself to all or does not make Matthew Dillahunty believe is not an argument against the existence of God that would be very compelling to any Calvinist. In fact, it won't even be very compelling evidence that Matt has objectively set aside his bias and honestly evaluated the world around him and is just sincerely and honestly and reasonably coming to the position of disbelief. Sorry, Matt. I know you want us to accept that presumption, I know you want us to think that that we just have to go along with that you're you're just this this objective bystander just scientifically evaluating the evidence and that there's no there's no bias playing whatsoever. Sorry, we can't go along with it. I simply am not going to allow it. I find no reason to think that you have evaluated the evidence objectively without bias and without a sinful autonomy to reject the rightful authority of God over your life. I have absolutely no reason to think so. So here we can see how Calvinism can better handle the problem of evil and the problem of divine hiddenness. Now, I said earlier uh, that there was somewhat of a problem with the standard apologetical approach to these issues and why I think Calvinism is a different approach, a better approach, a more historic and traditional biblically faithful approach. I was recently talking to my friend Owen Pond. Most of you know that I've talked about him. Uh, he, he's he's uh, the, the, the main admin on the Christus Victor Network where you can find this show as well. And he asked me why so many apologists seem to be enamored with Molinism lately. And the best explanation that I can give is that they back into their biblical theology from their practical apologetics. Now, 
I know a lot of my fellow apologists are not going to like what I'm about to say, and I'm about to step on a lot of toes. So I'm sorry, but I think this is true and has to be said. So many apologists have been influenced by William Lane Craig, and I'm, and I'm not saying that a bad thing. I'm influenced by William Lane Craig in a, in a lot of ways as well. This is just one area where I disagree with him. Uh, and And I think there's a certain methodology that they adopt to defend against these problems where they think that we need to appeal to best possible world semantics and and to human freedom and so forth. And in doing so, they come to certain conceptions of the will and of human freedom and, and divine sovereignty and so forth. And then they use those concepts and they back their way into biblical theology to understand these passages. This is why typically when I debate a Molinist, there's very little systematic biblical theology that happens, but there's a lot of philosophical maneuvering that happens. And I'm not trying to say that philosophy is bad. Those of you listening to the show know that I love philosophy. But we shouldn't eisegete passages to make them fit with our current modern philosophical categories. So with this episode, I'd like to basically appeal to my fellow apologists to become better biblical theologians. Learn how biblical theology is and can be your best apologetic. Start from biblical theology and work your way to a biblical apologetic. And I think you'll be much more successful in handling these answers and in presenting uh, the best possible defense, not just for theism generally, but for Christian theism in specific. Okay, well, now that I've turned off basically all my atheistic listeners by saying that God may not want a relationship with you, and all my apologetics uh, and and apologist listeners by saying that you often do uh, sloppy biblical theology, let me just close by saying who we should and shouldn't vote for in the upcoming election. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, I'm not going to go there. Uh, With that, let's wrap up the series looking at the doctrines of grace and how they relate to apologetics. I hope this was helpful for many of you. And now that we have these concepts in place, we'll continue with our series going through the so-called biblical atrocities. Well, now we likely won't have a new episode in that series for quite some time because I have a few interviews and debates lined up over the next few episodes for you all. So we'll we'll see how how those goes, but we will we will get back into the issue of biblical atrocities. Also, if you haven't already, please head on over to Amazon and pick up your copy of my new book, Measuring McAfee. Why One Atheist's Attempt to Disprove Christianity Misses the Mark, where I present my blistering critique of the work of David McAfee, an atheistic, um, I want to say fundamentalist (laughs) at this point, uh, even though I know he's not very happy with it, but I think it's accurate. Uh, Buy now and buy often. Feel free to share it around with your friends and your family, even if you or them have, have never heard of David McAfee, because... Within the book, there are so many theological and apologetical issues that are touched on and they're addressed that it, that it really is helpful. It almost serves as a kind of encyclopedia of apologetical uh, arguments and topics. So with that, let's wrap this up. Thank you again for joining me here on the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or visit the Freed Thinker podcast group 
page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining us. Good night and God bless.